the Mississippi Crop Situation Podcast featuring the Crop Doctors. Hey folks, Jason Bond and the Crop Doctors Podcast Studio from Stoneville on a cloudy afternoon. Tom's here with me today. Hey Tom. How are you? Cloudy, wet, following a pretty significant rain event. Big rain this morning and uh, Angus is on the phone. What's up, Angus? Hey, I'm here. About to trudge through some mud. All right, so Angus is on the road today, and he's calling in on the phone. Angus, what's going on in the entomology world? Give us a little brief overview of that. Well, what's, one of the things I got, been, Wait, 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 wait. I got a question for you, but I want to hear what's going okay. on in the bug world first. All right. One of the things we've been talking about doing now for a couple of weeks, we're probably having one of the worst army worm years we've seen in just, and you're probably in a lot of people's whole career, uh, the last time we've seen anything even remotely close, and it wasn't even close to what we're seeing this year, was 2014. But not just in the crops. You know, a lot of the questions that we've been getting a lot of lately is just from people, you know, uh, cattle producers growing Bermuda hay fields, just anybody that has a Bermuda lawn or any kind of lawn that army worms like. Smashed my yard. You, 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 yeah, you name it, though. But, you know, one thing we have been getting you know, a lot of questions is about people's food plots. People are planting duck holes now, or they got duck holes to manage. And uh, that's sort of the, the topic that we're going to address today, more so than, you know, our normal crop stuff. It's the other stuff, but particularly wildlife food plots. All right. I think that would be a topic of interest for a lot of folks that listen to us. So we'll describe that in a second, how that episode is going to play out. But before we do that, Angus, do you remember what your first CD slash tape slash eight track tape was? Well, I never had an eight track, but I remember eight tracks. My mom had one. See, that's why I had and, to throw it in there. Cause I figured you, yeah, least, no, you know, she, it, was it, was El- it was Elvis. It was Elvis. But all of my mine were uh, actually cassette tapes, and most of them were nearly every uh, album, I guess, that Hank Jr. ever wrote. Okay. See, I didn't know which direction you were going because if Don yeah. if Don was in here, it was going to be Slayer. <laughs> What's wrong with that? <laughs> well, it's just something. My, my first cassette tape was not Slayer. <laughs> something you just don't associate with Don Cook 2021, although – it might have been Judas Priest. You never know. Some of those Priest albums yeah. came out early 80s. He's, that would have been. He's a fascinating <laughs> character, no doubt. All right, Angus, army worms and food plots and, and duck holes. So tell folks what you did last week and where this content's coming from. Yeah, so we had an idea that, you know, we were talking. Uh, we were at that meeting, uh, what, last week or a week or two ago because we've been getting these food plot questions. We talked about bringing Dr. Bronson Strickland in, Mississippi State Extension Service, works here at Food Plots. Well, it just so happened I got a call from the Mossy Oak Gamekeeper uh, podcast group, and they had the exact same idea at the exact same time. They wanted to bring me and Bronson in to talk about Army Worms. And I told them that we were going to do that. We just kind of made the deal that we would just do the podcast w- with them at their headquarters there in West Point, also share it the Mississippi Crop Situation Crop Doctor podcast. And also I think um, that Bronson is going to share the same information on his uh, Deer University podcast. So it'll be hitting three platforms this week. And uh, they was all recorded there at Mossy Oak Gamekeepers. Well, we're going to jump off. What you're going to hear from this point forward will be the podcast that Angus recorded with the Mossy Oak Gamekeeper show in West Point. Hi, I'm Jeff Foxworthy, and welcome to Gamekeeper Podcast. 
If you want to learn more about farming for wildlife and habitat management, then buddy, you are in the right place. Join the Gamekeeper crew direct from Mossy Oak Land Enhancement Studio as they discuss the latest wildlife and habitat management practices, news, and of course, hunting. There's no telling what you'll learn, but I'm going to tell you, I bet it's interesting. Enjoy. We're live in three, two, one. All right. Well, welcome everybody back to West Point, Mississippi, to the home of Mossy Oak and the Gamekeeper Studio. Yeah. Welcome back yourself, Bobby. We missed you last week. Well, I, you know, I missed it, but I'm I'm really proud of you guys. It was a great podcast. Well, thank you. We used, you know, Hercules stood in your place as yeah. always. Yeah. Well, I don't yeah. know how we pulled it off, but it worked. Well, it was really good. I I ended up I, I listened to it and I thought. But they did. They did a great job. They don't need me. You missed the canned deer meat, though. It well, I've, I've been scared of that since yeah. ever since. I'm I telling you, it was delicious. It, it was fabulous. It was fabulous. I'm going to can some deer meat this year for sure. Well, yeah, the the podcast was great, and well, y'all, I, I never thought that the, on our manly gamekeeper podcast I would hear the words pate. So, <laughs> so uh, we know. followed that up with potted meat, though. You, you did. You, you recovered good on that. <laughs> I knew what potted meat was. I didn't know what. Well, pate it makes you feel was. better. I've never had pate, but I've heard you know <laughs> Sam talk about it so much. Speaking of, he's got some. I, I smell something going on back there too. I think he's whooping on some wild boar pork carnitas. Oh wow! So, yeah, so, we got some. Guest, special yeah. guest in Fancy the studio. Our, yeah, our favorite guest, old, old Bronson. He's a he's yeah, a repeat Bronson. victim. Yep. So, <laughs> so let me let me kind of set up today. Um, we're going to talk about army worms. Oh yeah. And, and again, once again, Mississippi State has is helping us. We've got Doctor Angus Ketchup. Now, have I pronounced that right? Yeah, that's right. Ketchup. Oh, okay, Ketchup. Yeah, okay. okay. And of course, we got uh, Doctor Bronson Strickland over here in the house. So hey. yeah. yeah. So, <laughs> Thank you, Mac. So, <laughs> so I wanted to say that, you know, we're talking about worms, and I can look around this room and relate worms to everybody. Lanny, you have a tapeworm. <laughs> yes, my whole Dudley, life. <laughs> Dudley has taken ivermectin, which is a parasite killer right now, trying to kill parasites. I'm just to be sure. Parasites. Yes. Just, just to be sure. Mac is one of the wormiest people I know. Yeah, yeah. Bronson has wormed his way into yet another podcast. <laughs> <laughs> and then we have an entomologist expert over here. Well, it's so many things in common. Except worms are just, they're everywhere. Right? And they are everywhere right now. But they're what. not really worms, are they? Oh, they're caterpillars. No, that's that, deep. That's yeah, next that's level deep. right there. That's, that's deep. That's deep. Way to go, <laughs> so, well, Before we get started, uh, I just wanted to say that, um, you know, guys need to be watching our Gamekeeper television show. It started airing on Tuesday nights. Uh, we got a couple of shows with Bronson. Yeah, about speaking of worming in the thing. So, uh, so that, that show's doing good. And we, we've done a lot with Mississippi State. We've got uh, an, an old Mississippi State guy, Dr. Mike Chamberlain, is on there several mm -hmm. times. We're t we've, we've dedicated a lot of shows to wild turkeys this year. A hundred percent. One of our favorite subjects. Yep. So, guys, we need y'all to watch that. And, you know, if you're listening to this, if you're in the very far north, when we're talking about Wisconsin, Minnesota, New York, those places, those They're guys are getting started, about to, to get plant. started planting. Yeah. So, I'm sure some of them already have. Yeah. 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 Some people will get those brassicas in a little bit earlier than Yeah, that normal. sounds like Todd Amonrude yeah. in upper Minnesota. So so it's an exciting time. There's a lot going on, and that, that leads us to our commercial. Mac, I think you've got something teed up, don't you? I do. Uh, I mean, like you said, it's getting that time to plant for our buddies above the Mason-Dixon line. And with that being said, I mean, we can't talk about planting food plots without talking about Ferminator. 
And so they've got this new implement that uh, is an ATV implement. And I mean, it looks awesome. It looks really cool. Oh, look, if they make it, it's good. I had no earthly idea. Why didn't y'all tell me about this? Well, we keep some things from Oh, my goodness. Yeah, but yeah. It, it is, you know, they make the best, most oh, no durable doubt. equipment. No yeah, it's just about it. it's tough beefy, stuff. beefy, durable stuff. It's it awesome. can put up with our abuse, so put it that way. Now, it's going to take a big four-wheeler to, or a UTV to pull it, but uh, y'all go to Furminator.com and check it out. Yeah. It's a great product. So thank you, Mac, on that. And so let me set the stage. We're going to do something a little different with this podcast. We're going to work with uh, both these guys have podcasts themselves. We've got the Crop Doctors, which is which is recorded out of uh, the Mississippi Delta. So we're going to share this with the Crop Doctors. We want to welcome all the farmers that might be listening to this because we love farmers. Absolutely. You guys are the backbone of, of what, what this country stands for. We, we're super fans <clears throat> of farmers. Then also Bronson's got a podcast called Deer University. And we're going to share that with them or, or, mm-hmm. and work together on this. So we want to say hello to all those people. And and uh, I think this should work out, guys. We appreciate us yeah. all doing this together. So We're working so efficiently. Yeah, nice. we, that, that's right. Yeah, we, re- <laughs> we really are. So, uh, <laughs> so look, and, and look, I, I've got it under a uh, good word that uh, the boss will be here in a few minutes. Um, so. We're talking about Army Worms. He's going to show he, up. He's got a DEF CON <laughs> yeah. team. Yeah, he's literally is has a tactical warfare unit that's dedicated to Army Worms. So he's really all built it. by hand. So yeah, you'll see you'll see him with a uh, with a, one of those nets out in the, <laughs> in a field. So, so look, he's let's let's get started. Um, let let's just let's start. Uh, Angus, let me just first say you guys have the neatest first names. Angus, <laughs> oh, that's an old red blooded beefy <laughs> American <laughs> name. <laughs> <laughs> you know, Bronson, that's a yeah, pretty that's manly a name. name yeah. That's right. That's a, lot, a lot cooler than Bobby, that's for sure. <laughs> yeah, I'm thinking about well, changing you would, my you name. Would thought yeah. You would have thought I'd have been a, a beef cattle specialist instead of an entomologist with a name like Angus, yeah. but it is what it is. And I'm actually a junior, so I have a dad named Angus and a son named Angus. There's oh, three of awesome. us running around. Big A and little A. That's awesome. Yeah, that's what we get a lot. Well, look, we're hearing, seems like this is the earliest I can remember people talking about army worms, and it seems like they're worse this year than ever. That What's sure seems thick. I mean, all the news, in, uh, local news and state news and regional news, I've seen it all stretching up across the Delta, up into Arkansas, Mississippi, of course. It's just like, it's a hot topic right now because army worms are everywhere. What's going on? Well, I'm not going to say that this is necessarily the earliest that we've seen them, but what's different this year is just the sheer magnitude, the numbers that we're seeing across just huge geographies. Now that part is different. Uh, 2014, you know, I went back and looked at my Twitter account from 2014. I hashtagged Army Wormageddon, and that was when we really thought we had it bad. Was in 14, and we have them every year to to some degree, but this year. It makes 14, you know, look like it wasn't even really anything. But it's a, it's a big, big, big problem. And it started uh, probably about the 1st of June. And we've seen them earlier than that, but just not constant pressure that keeps rolling and rolling and rolling. Now, as far as what's causing the, the, the big numbers, you know, I don't know that we really know a, an answer to that. Uh, they don't overwinter here. They don't have an overwintering mechanism. So they're migratory. They move from southern locations every year where they were allowed, where they were able to, I guess, survive the winter. Uh, one thing, you know, everybody always talks about cold, cold winters. What effect that might have on different insect pests. And it has various effects on different insects. There's some things that we know for sure that cold winters will knock the numbers back. But we have always just sort of anecdotally had more caterpillar type pest problems 
behind a cold winter. And what we think is happening, and it's just a, it's just a guess, it's our best guess, not just mine alone, but a collective group of us, cold winters tend to kill off a lot of the parasitoids that take that first generation out when they come out of overwintering and they move to some wild host crop. Right now, without those, those natural enemies beating that population down, it just allows it to expand and, and, and really grow and, and move really unchecked for the most part. And that's sort of our theory right now. And I don't know if that's true or not, but it seems very, uh, very likely that it may be what's, what's going on. Interesting. How, yeah. How do caterpillars migrate? Well, <laughs> slowly. Uh, it seems like we ought to be able to stop that somehow. <laughs> well, you've always, you've probably heard about army worms marching and that's actually true. They eat at one source and they just kind of move across the ground, but I'm actually talking about the moth. The adult moth. Okay. They come out of overwinter and they'll start flying north. And they lay an, an egg on... They they lay a egg mass mm-hmm. uh, and they cover it with scales from their body. So it'll be an egg mass. It may have 50 to several hundred eggs in each mass. So when they hatch out, that's why you'll see a whole bunch of them in the area where they hatch. Now we have some moths that like attack our crops. They lay single eggs on different things. But army worms, whether you're talking about fall army worms, there's a lot of species of army worms. All of them lay their eggs in masses. And, and I've, I've always, I've heard there has to be a certain humidity or a certain time of year or, it, it, or a certain temperature. Is, is that right? Well, temperature affects the length, I guess, that most insects will stay in certain instars or different development stages of their of their life. Mm-hmm. But for the most part, I mean, we're going to have, it don't play a big part. What it may play, temperature, humidity, and all that stuff may, they, there's a lot of natural viruses that take a lot of these things out when they hit these big numbers. And sometimes if the humidity gets right and environmental conditions get right, sometimes you'll see some sort of epizootic virus that'll hit the population and just wipe out mass numbers of them. And sometimes humidity and all that stuff actually does have an effect on that. It don't really play too big of a, a, a you know, a role in what we're talking about now. I and mean, we're going to have army worms. Mm-hmm. It can it's have just going to happen. Yeah, it's, it's going to happen to some degree. It's just a year like this year, people are, are in tune because it don't matter whether you're a, a cattle farmer with trying to, you know, grow hay or, a, you know, you got a yard in Jackson, Mississippi, Bermuda that's been ate all the mm-hmm. way down or the crops that I'm working in every day. I mean, they're they're across the board this year yeah, and everything. Golf courses, I'm here, I'm here. Golf there. courses, yeah. I imagine. Oh, yeah. 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 So uh, two quick questions for me, and I know everybody's got questions, but I'd love to understand like the window that, that, that we need to be watching for mm-hmm. these things. And then also how far out or how far north do the army worms go? So are guys in Missouri, do they need to be concerned? Illinois, that part of the world, how, how far out? So, so right now they're having problems from Oklahoma through Texas, through Mississippi and Alabama. I talked to some of my counterparts in Georgia uh, yesterday. They're not really seeing it. Um, and that just may be the, the migratory path that they're taking. You know, y'all work of with the mother ducks. Moth. Y'all work with ducks yeah. and all that. We've always assumed that insects have kind of flyways too, particularly stuff like soybean loopers. I mean, the East Coast gets a strain, and then we get a strain like up through Texas and all. So you know, the only thing that really keeps them in check will be cold weather. So they're going to get to a point as they start rolling north. They could make it way north. I mean, they're already in the Tennessee. They're having big problems. They'll probably be in Kentucky, and they'll be moving north. But at some point, we're going to start hitting temperatures that's going to stop them, and that's going to be 
about the only thing that's going to stop them. And you start getting to a point where they just can't make it. Now, those generations that are moving north, they're essentially suicidal generations because they don't have an overwintering mechanism. So at some point, when the cold weather, frost or whatever stops them, I mean, we're not going to worry about those next year because that's a suicidal generation. We're going to have to start the process over from the south moving north again. And did they go through, I'm sorry for jumping in on questions, yeah, no, yeah. you know, it, and help me understand this. So they're moving up, you know, going south to north. Uh, these these moths are flying in and laying an egg clutch. They hatch into these larvae. If there's not enough predation in my mind or whatever, they continue to thrive. Those in turn turn into moths and fly further north. Is that right? That's right. And it'll be some low. So that's how they're marching. They're exactly. actually going through a bunch of different life cycles. They're going to be rolling north, and there'll be some local dispersion too. <laughs> so we're growing some of our own, but it's a sort of a constant move north. And you can track that, you know, talking to people. You see it on social media, whatever. And yeah. that's the march. No, that's not really the march. When you hear about army worms marching, we're literally talking about the caterpillars. Mm -hmm. When they eat a food source, they'll march. Right, I've seen them move yeah. across the field. Yeah. Uh, but yeah. the way they're getting further north latitude is actually laying eggs and those hatching right. and flying that's further north. Right. Gotcha. So, guys, we got Toxa here. He just walked in. How you doing? This is Angus Ketchup. Nice to see you. Good to see you. So, uh, Tasha, we got we got started. <laughs> yeah. We brought you a, a, an entomology net. You uh, thought you might want to have one. Is that the so, technical name for that? So, yep. exactly what it is. Yep. You know he's got one. Ten years so, probably. So. <laughs> yep. So here we go. We got Toxie Hayes in the house now. All we right. can really get down to this business with some good yeah. questions. Toxie, as we were telling you earlier, he fights army worms like nobody you've ever met. Mm -hmm. He's got a whole little rig, and he that he gets after him with. So uh, he, he's got a lot of insight into this and and, uh, and where we're going. But if we could kind of circle back to where we were with Lanny's question there, but where's that window? Is it- You is want it to just start back over with the- Well, let's start with the, the window of when these things need to start watching for them. And that's probably early to mid July. Well, this year we started getting our first calls in South Mississippi, the 1st of June. Yeah. So, and then and we knew when we were getting those calls and we were getting a lot of them, we knew it was going to start moving north and it didn't take long. It was just a couple of weeks later, you know, they had hit the, like the highway 82 corridor and just the last couple of weeks, they had already made it into Tennessee. But typically the, typically in Mississippi, some of the Southern hay producers may see some as early as late May on, depending on the year, uh, wind currents or whatever that helps them move north. But this year it probably started about the first of June. Wow. Well, it does seem like here the our phone started ringing a little bit earlier than, than normal. No and, doubt. Yeah. Oh. That. So, are, are you seeing them on, on oh, your gosh. places? Oh yeah, they're yeah. everywhere. I mean, yeah. I think y'all. Well, we haven't. Just, you know, we. I, the longer I live, the more I wait till the last minute uh, to do things. So we really aren't doing any millet till August. We're just not starting. Sure. To be honest with you, sure. because you know it's like last year we. You know, flew all the milledon, went through all that expense and time and trouble in the main, you know, our main like, you know, sanctuaries, and you know, we had a big rain. It headed out, and it just looked great. And we had a big rain. It was still warm. That stuff will just, you know, it'll it'll germinate on the on the still in a pod. It's just you can you can run so fast, or deer or hogs especially right. destroy it. So we're waiting late, uh, but I've seen I've never seen. Um, or never heard the stories like I've been hearing for the last couple of weeks. Cuz sent me a picture of his, and they ran out of grass, and they jumped on his corn. They destroyed his corn. I mean, he sent me a corn stalk 
and a picture of about a foot of the corn stalk and some shredded leaves and stuff. There's probably 20 worms in that little section. You could just oh, see man. they just destroyed mm -hmm. his corn. So, And he had a good-looking crop. Too. Oh, he, he was, was so proud. He, that's it. his life revolves growing that 10-acre cornfield by his house. Yeah. yeah. So, Angus, we got a guy, you probably know him, Keith Baggett. He's from Louisiana. He works with Helena, and he, well, he stays in touch with us. But he had sent me a message the other day that, they're battling them in rice this year. And he alluded to that these worms, they weren't able to kill them with traditional pesticides. That there was something going on with these. Oh, I think the pyrethroids yeah, are a little like weak this year probably, or something. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, that's the rumor I heard. I well, think. and I didn't know how much of the, about all this, you know, how deep in the weeds you wanted to get with this or not. Deep. But, uh, yeah, we're, yeah. we're well, weeds. Kind of okay, so, you know, I just want to make sure we can relate it to everybody out yeah, there, sure. you know, and not sure. just the farmer so, only, but yeah, deep. That's I mean, because right. that's what we're talking about in yeah. relation to food plots. You were just talking about, we hadn't mentioned that yet, that we're planting waterfowl forage right now, yeah. you know, out there. Oh, yeah. The I that's mean, what we're really looking at. As far as the waterfowl forage, planting guy's choice. Yeah. Hey, I've been. You know, we we kind of changed a lot of people like around here, and there's a, a lot of people doing what we've been doing. And, you know, a lot more business for the local co-op, for us locally, selling Guy's Choice. And, you know, I, I told them 10 years ago, I said, if you're not prepared to spend the money to protect it from army worms, you're wasting your money. And then Jonathan Co-op was just telling me, he said, I told them everybody what you said, and they just came back and crying. I lost 20 acres. I had 20 acres of beautiful millet. It was gone in like three days. That's, that's, that's what's going to happen. You might as well just, in the, for whatever reason, millet like that. More than anything I've found, he can verify that or not. There's anything tender probably with a thin cell wall, I'm sure, they're attracted to. But if you don't, if you're not prepared to do that, you might as well just not even do it, you know. Mm. Is that what you're experiencing? Angus? Well, yeah. They, I mean, obviously they love millet. Back up on the rice a minute. No, it's not uncommon at all to get them in rice. But what's uncommon again is just the sheer number of acres yes. that have them this year. But your question about about pyrethroids, kind of back up just a minute. So f we're dealing with with fall armyworms, but there's two strains. There's what we call a rice strain, which is sometimes called the grass strain. That's what we're dealing with mainly. But they also got what they call a corn strain, right. which is what we see in cotton and a lot of times in corn and grain sorghum and stuff like that. Now, you can't tell them apart. They got to do DNA sequencing to tell them apart. Hmm. We tell them apart by the host that they're on. If they're starting in your pastures, Bermuda, or if they're in rice or whatever, if they're coming out of grass in your soybeans, I mean, we typically say that's the grass strain. And in the past, the grass strain has been extremely easy to control with stuff like pyrethroids. I mean, 100% with low to, to mid rates of, of pyrethroids. This year, I would say I'm probably averaging 50 calls a day, minimum, just on army worms. And my wow. phone's sitting here been buzzing the whole time we're, we're here. <laughs> and, uh, but this year, we're not. On, on average, and I keep up with it, everybody I talk to, we're probably averaging 40 to 70% control. Sometimes that may be enough, but if you're dealing with 10 gazillion and you leave 30%, you still lost everything. Yeah, that's three gazillion. Yeah, three. <laughs> so, that's a good math. But that, but I that's can do that math. That's, that's more than you want, I promise you. Yeah, so the question is why are we not controlled and we always have before? Well, there's a couple of theories there. There's really only two answers. One is we have resistance, to py resistance with pyrethroids. Well, that's probably not likely but it may be the other is we have corn strain mixed in with rice strain they've always been harder to control with pyrethroids we've dealt with that in cotton and stuff like that for years mm. that's probably the more likely thing 
and we're making some collections because there's people that can do this this analysis and tell us what strain. And that's just an academic thing that, that we're doing. But at the end of the day, the question is, okay, how, how do I control them? So we've changed our recommendations up. We're doing a lot of different things right now. But, you know, I work row crops. I mean, that's what I do. So, I mean, I can tell you a lot of things that will control them, but that don't necessarily mean the average person that has a food plot or a duck hole or whatever else has access or, you know, can, can buy that kind of stuff. But there are some things, and we can talk about that when, you, when we get to that point that we can do that will make a big difference. Yeah, because, again, related to everybody out there, because there are, there are a smaller percentage of our following consumers, customers, that uh, have every bit the sophistication and resources of a right. big farmer, you know. But they're also the ones doing the most and covering the most ground. And quite honestly, a lot of them are the ones that own the land that you lease. Yeah. Uh, and they're taking care of it. They have those resources. We should speak to them because they could do anything to protect what they've done. But then, you know, uh, you know, everybody, even if you just got one food plot somewhere and you want to protect it, how do we talk to that? And one of the things is uh, always in the back of my mind, it, 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 two questions here and you just said. One was, what would be kind of a general recommendation for something that might uh, take care of either strain or any other, you know, maybe yeah. there's even some other variant of worm. There's a lot of worms that look like an army worm that like uh, there's a black one that'll eat and shred all our ferns. I don't know what it is. It doesn't even eat anything else around it, but it looks just like a black army worm. So there's different things. What would be the recommendation for people in general for something that on average would, because, you know, the pyrethroids, I guess grizzly is one of those. It's got a lot of pyrethroin. Isn't that the right chemical name? Grizzly's one of them. Yeah, and it would be like, if you wanted to just smoke them right then, that's what, the you know, and they recommended. But if that's not working, I've had the best luck with, um, we're not here to, you know, talk about any specific, uh, you know, and obviously recommend any specific brand name or whatever, but we should talk about them so people recognize them. The, the things that are absorbed into the leaf and the plant. And as um, I guess it was maybe Bernie or somebody worked over there said, you know, uh, next bite they take at Seat Farm. So it's not like it kills them on contact, but it's so protective. And it even with uh, as long as you've gotten it in and it's rain fast in like an hour or two, you know, you've I've, I've never had to go back and respray much at all. Uh, it, other than if you spray when plants are tiny, three, four inches, there's just not enough surface area and intake as they get bigger to, to still protect them. But if I've gotten my millet to, oh, you know, nine inches or more and spray, like Intrepid is a common one that yeah, we use. Tribunal. And everybody yeah, around here kind of uses that one. That's just, you know, there's a bunch of them. I've had great success with that. Myself. Now, we may What's be... What's the chemical uh, name of Intrepid? Do we know? Methoxyphenicide. Okay. Huh. I was just <laughs> fixing to say that. He <laughs> made me to say that. <laughs> I'm trying to still figure out what that P word was. Perethroids. So, yeah, I'm going to listen to him. But yeah. I'm just trying to... My experience yeah. is so maybe that people can relate to that. But I'm telling you right now, we're going to air this next week. You better be listening because I feel like, and he can tell us, that it's going to be a bigger bleed off into the early food plot stuff, they'll wipe your cereal grains out just as fast as anything on the planet. And I mm -hmm. think September, if something doesn't change, is going to be one of the worst early food plot places. And so what is the other thing I wanted to add and let him talk was like, <laughs> what I'm thinking, well, think about this. You're, you're spraying something so deadly, you got to be so careful with it. 
but you're spraying it on a food plot or something that you're expecting deer to eat the next day. That's a good point. So we, you know, environmentally conscious has got to be number one for us. 100%. Mm-hmm. So that's why this is like, you know, of course, he's got experience with cattle grazing and stuff too. That's what I wanted to, a wildlife person who wants to be sure he doesn't plant his food plots coming up in a couple of weeks and just lose them overnight. I want to be sure we've covered that. Yeah. And, and especially with these does with young fawns. Yes. Those, those are and I'll set them up to ask questions yeah. for now. Okay, you've got all the questions. Yeah. Now. Well, so so the first thing, I mean, you kind of you got to be careful about making recommendations of insecticides yes. to Very such a, a broad group of people. I mean, I grew up hunting, fishing, doing this and my stuff my whole life. Now I'm in ag. I mean, I know how to walk out there. I know how to calibrate a sprayer, and I know how to be safe and do that kind of stuff. And most people that are farmers or tied to ag in some way can do the same. But then you got people in the middle that know a little bit, and you got people that don't know anything that's going to go out there and spray stuff that could potentially be dangerous to yourself. Now, the one thing that would stop some of the problems is the pyrethroids and some of the stuff that we've been talking about. They're restricted use pesticides. You can't even go buy them unless you have a, an applicator, a private applicator's license. Right. So those people are not going to be able to have access to those products anyway. But kind of getting back to, uh, so you need to be careful when you tell somebody to do something because I'm telling you, I talk to people every day in pastures or whatever that they really don't know what they're doing at all. And they don't think they understand that some of these these pesticides that we're spraying are dangerous. I mean, you know, they're mixing them with their hand, everything else. I mean, mm. you gotta be super, super careful with this stuff. They're not used to that. So it's not their fault. They just don't don't know that. But when you you're talking about stuff that lasted a long time and stuff that was was quick. Um, depending on the class of insecticide, the pyrethroids, is, it's a class of, there's a whole bunch of them that are labeled a million different names of, of generics and everything else. They're very quick acting. They're going to kill stuff really quick, right? So, I mean, you, in a couple hours, you'll see worms kicking on the ground or what you're going to be able to kill out of that population. But then you got the stuff you mentioned, Troubadour, Intrepid, some of the methoxyphenicide products. Those products are growth regulators. They're a little slower. But the, the beauty of those, for one, they're not restricted use. Anybody can buy it. Now, the unfortunate thing is because we're having this big run on rice and soybeans and all that, farmers are buying it up. Now, if you're going to have trouble finding this stuff, I'm just going to tell you very soon. We just got a, a crisis exemption. Call co-op, Bobby. <laughs> yeah, we just got a crisis exemption yesterday to use that product in rice. And I can tell you, it's fixing to get sucked up. So that's something else, but that's a whole other story. But these products will tend to last 10, 14 days or longer, yeah. giving you residual. Yeah. So anything that's hatching into it that you might it's not it. have killed, that's the, you know that'll that'll help you there. And again, it's not restricted use. It's fairly safe as insecticides go. But there's a couple more. There's some that's in the, the diamide class of chemistry, stuff like Prevathon or Besiege or products like that. They have a super long residual, but they're a lot more costly. So there's things to balance out. If you're a hay producer, they don't want to do that because they're trying to make a profit. Right. If you got a duck hole, it don't matter what it costs. You want a duck <laughs> That's hole. That's right. So those <laughs> products, I think those products, you know, like Prevathon or whatever, uh, would fit those situations good. Because here, here's the biggest problem with food plots. You're not looking at them every week. You plant them, and you might get by there two or three weeks later. That's the problem. If you were there every three days, you could catch them. And that's the problem everybody's always got with food plots, getting ate up by armworms. Yes, and, and when they're small, you don't have any time. I mean, I remember the, the big yeah. duck sanctuary was probably 120 acres worth of millet in one hole, just like looking across a bay. And 
if we would have had our net back then, we would have probably caught it. But I went on a Saturday, looked great, didn't see anything really being eaten or anything. Tuesday, it was all gone. Like we had sprayed hot Roundup on it. And there were so many worms, it looked like a nuclear bomb had gone off. And they were tr they were even trying to eat that naughty old gator weed stuff yep. that grows. And they just, I mean, that fast. They found something that good and a hundred and something acres were gone in like three days. But it was so short, you don't have time. Now, if you've got a crop that's a foot or two already, you've got more time. But when my advice to people growing duck food right now, you better check it every other day. Yes, great point. Because when it's young, they'll wipe it out so fast. You don't have any time. So you're checking ag crops. They're checking them every day. Yeah, yes. well, yeah. Twice a week, a lot of Twice them. Twice a week, a lot of them. Yeah. Say, yeah. So you got a handle Great point. Mm -hmm. Well, here's something else that people need to really, really remember. And this is really important when you're talking about timing. It don't matter whether you're talking about an army worm, a cotton bowl worm, or whatever. Caterpillars, they're typically, most of them are typically during the caterpillar stage, is going to live 12, 14 days. And they're going to go through like five different instars. They're going to molt and be, go to the next stage until they pupate and turn into a moth, right? Well, the last three days of their life as a caterpillar, they'll eat 90% of all the food they're gonna eat their entire life as a caterpillar. Well, so if you walk into your food plot and you got quarter inch worms, you got a little time to think about this. Mm -hmm. If you walk into your food plot and you got three quarter inch worms, I mean, in a couple of days it could be gone. It could be the all gone. I mean, you gotta be quick, you gotta take action fast. So that, I mean, that gives you some sense of the urgency of how quick you need to deal with this. That's why we should, sell these things or give them away or something. But these entomology <laughs> nets seriously are the best tool that we've ever had, simply because you can rake and see the tiny little worms way before, you know, just walking they out there big. with your eyeballs. So, and it makes a huge difference. So you're just taking that thing and just swiping the top of the millet? For, yes. Well, you just, I just put it at ground level and rake across whatever. You know, if you've got a bunch of tiny little plants, I mean, I'll, I'll go around the plot, but you can see, I mean, even they'll, they'll be in there. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's it's by far made a huge difference in us because so many times we're like, well, because I want my crop to get big enough so that when I spray it, it's protected. Mm -hmm. If I have to protect it at three inches, I'm going to have to spend the money again. So, But when it's little, you better go take that net and check it every day or two, or so you'll lose it when it's young. So Angus, what, what how, how do you use the net or what, what's your, what are you looking for when you first go to a field? So I look for, I, I do it three ways. Of course, the sweep net is, is important. The first thing I do when I walk into a field, there's in, what I call indicator grasses. There's certain, th certain things army worms like a lot better than others. Now they'll eat about anything. If they eat the stuff they really like, then they're gonna move the stuff they don't like. Bermuda, crab grass, all the uh, brown top millet, signal grass. That's the kind of stuff they're gonna probably go to first. First thing I do, if I just see the white etching on the leaf, that's a sign that they're there. Mm -hmm. The sweep net, of course, is great. Now, however, with this heat we've been dealing with lately, a lot of times during the heat of the day, they'll literally be on the ground surface. So I don't always rely only on a sweep net. That'll give you an idea of what's there, no doubt. But sometimes I can part the, the grass back, and you'll see hundreds of them just on the soil surface also, and they'll move up at different times. But the sweep net is easy. It's something that a lot of people can do. You don't have to have a lot of experience. But I sweep, and I, I mean, I hit the ground, drag the ground on short <laughs> stuff, depending on the size of the crop. 
So but the first thing is those etching on the leaf. If you see the etching on the leaf, you better look closer. So if you are you For pulling sure. up in a field and you, are you seeing wasps? Are you seeing birds? Or are there other indicators that that you say, oh, there's going to be a problem right here? Bird, birds are a good one. If you if you drive by your pasture and it's full of blackbirds. Get egrets or whatever. Robins? I've noticed robins in our yard and yeah. the wasp for sure. Yeah, anything. If you see a bunch of birds in a field, this right now with what we're going through, you better go out there and look at your field or in your yard or whatever because they're there eating, they're eating army worms. And I just thought of something that's more important than our food plots, way more, way more important than anything in this business, and that's our kids. And so people at home with yards, you know, what is the protocol for them, you know? To treat. Yeah, mm -hmm. as far as being, if the, at the end of the day, I'd much rather have you know, a dead yard than anything, make our kids sick or whatever. So yeah. that's why I don't know There's what what the most common safe things. I remember as a kid, they'd have to part us out of the way for baseball or football practice or something. And here comes a guy with a spray rig with seven. And he was like, hey, y'all go back to playing in 15 minutes. I'll be fine. <laughs> so I'm, I know that's probably one of the safer ones because it's been used forever. But it's probably worth mentioning in the context and getting his advice you know, what their protocol is for people's yards. Yeah, that's good. Well, so first, I mean, of course, entomology is a super big, broad topic, and we all have our specialty areas, and we all know a little bit about everybody else's. I mean, mine is row crops. I mean, but this crosses over to a lot of different stuff. I don't work people's, I don't work lawns, I guess. I answer a lot of questions on lawns, but some of the things that are the safest type products that we just talked about in food plots are also the safest to be used in lawns. And the stuff that we were talking about that can be dangerous, I mean, danger is sort of relative. I mean, I can have a bottle of poison sitting on the counter, but if I don't ever go mess with it, I'm okay. So a lot of times if somebody's spraying your lawn with something dangerous, they're gonna say there's stuff on the label. And that, let me mention that too. The label is the is the guiding you know, thing that we need to use for everything. Absolutely. I mean, the words on the label, I mean, you're you're bound to that kind of stuff. But if it tells you you can be back in there in 12 hours, that means it's been evaluated and it's safe to be back in there in, in, in 12 hours. So we have certain products that are obviously safer than others. But you mentioned something, Toxie, earlier that I really want to hit on. You said, you know, hey, we're worried about if we spray this stuff and we got stuff grazing on it. Yes. Well, that is an, an obvious concern. But the things that we're talking about that are labeled in pastures and stuff, most of the products that we're talking about have a zero day grazing or hay restriction. Most of them. Some of them have zero day grazing, but a seven day hay or whatever. So seven, you mentioned seven. Seven's 14 days though. Wow. For seven. But that's the only one that's that's really that far out. And we don't use as much seven anymore right. as, as we used to. But the products that we're that we've mentioned and the products that we're talking about, it would be safe for your wildlife to come right back in there behind it, or we wouldn't use it, especially where we got cattle. Mm -hmm. Well, I yeah. mean, when we you know we're spraying, it's, it's in a wetland area. It's going to drain. Of course, it, it'll drain off anyway, even if it's not. So, but it's just a consideration to be conscious of ecology there. But then the food plot was where I was really more concerned because you know. It, if it doesn't change the taste in some way or smell, they'll be right back in it that night. And so that's why I wanted to ask the question because... Can't uh, keep them out. Yeah, yeah now, one other thing you hit on I think is worth mentioning, although maybe not many people can do that, but the safest thing whatsoever to you personally is hire somebody else that really knows what they're doing to do it. Now, that's not really available everywhere. There's probably lawn services that can do your yard maybe. But he's right, boy, you got to be so, even if something's labeled and you think it's really safe, 
I was just having a conversation with Tom this morning about spraying chufas, and I was like, treat even some of this stuff that's so safe, you can use it as an aquatic herbicide and fish and swim right behind it. It's so safe. Every chemical, treat it like it kill you. Be, yeah, that, and, be yeah. that safe with yeah. everything. And when in doubt, call your extension agent. Yes. And that's what they're there for. You know, those labels can be daunting to read. Uh, so yes. When in doubt. Yes, call. yes. Treat them all with that kind of respect and... And you know, call a specialist. Yeah, don't just run out there and do it. And let the wind drift on you or whatever. Just you yeah. got to be. If you treat just like the fire, if you treat everything like it's could get away from you or it could harm you, then you'd be so much safer. Sure. So, so Bronson, we're not going to let you. You're not going to get out of here unscathed. <laughs> oh, now boy. I want to ask you a couple questions. As a, uh, you're doing a lot with deer research. How do, do these army worms and the potential for problems, are they factoring into decisions that you guys are making for your early fall crops, late summer crops? Yeah, to, to some extent, of, of, of course, I don't get near the, the feedback Angus gets on this. And um, the, one of the problems, I guess I can say a problem, is that, uh, that, that we want to solve is we don't have as many people planting warm season plots as they do cool season plots. And so, you know, we're generally, uh, you can get into the cool season list, but generally we're dealing with people that have a warm season plot and then they're having an issue with it. And Angus, I got to, based on us talking on the way over here, I got to thinking about, we're talking about preference. Um, are you generally, you're never gonna be shielded from this entirely. Are you gonna minimize the opportunity for an overwhelming invasion if you only had a warm season plot that was a legume and didn't have grasses or not adjacent to a pasture of grasses or Bermuda grass or something like that, do you think you'd decrease the likelihood? I, th I think you would decrease the likelihood, but it don't make you um, 100% that it's not gonna happen. And, and soybeans is a great example. Army worms will go straight to soybeans with no grass present. They will do that, but we don't see that a lot. This year, we've got a number of calls where they went straight to clean soybean fields, but we have treated a tremendous number, and I'm using soybeans as an example because it's a lagoon. Mm -hmm. uh, but we had a lot, you know, it gets rainy and the farmers can't get in and control the grass. The middles grow up with grass. The exactly. armyworms start on the grass. Then we go in and we make an application to control the grass. Well, those armyworms don't have anywhere to go. Well, they might not have intended to eat those soybeans, but if they have no choice, right. you come back in a week, you don't have any soybeans left. So, so it's the same thing with these legumes, these clovers and stuff. Wheat beans. Wheat beans are horrible yeah, right now. Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah, talking to Matt about it. He's, uh, he's, he's, I've been trying to get him to spray for two weeks, and he's like, as soon as I get a second, I'll do it. You're in line, and it's been two weeks. And he's still that backed up, and so many of us, like all these farmers, a lot of more farmers planted. If you look around wheat beans than normal, I, at least around here, yeah. eyeballing it, and that wheat's still there and germinated with all this rain, yep. and they just jumped on it, and when they ate that, they just started destroying people's beans. And if they, the beans aren't but three to six inches yep. tall, they can wipe them out pretty quick, too. Think mm -hmm. about your livelihood, hmm. you know? So I guess are these are these worms attracted more to highly fertilized food sources or or more tender? What what is the immediate attraction? I, I think that's typically the I mean how we think about it that the most lush pretty stuff tends to get you know get the the first or the most infestations or whatever. A year like this year, I mean, 
I rarely get them in my yard because my yard's horrible. I got about a four point eight pH, but I get to get them in my yard. But yeah, the stuff obviously. I mean, heck, just there's like, a man wiser than just his trade, right yeah. there. <laughs> yeah. So no, they 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 are. They tend to like stuff just like deer. You know, you, they they like stuff that that has better fertility. I think that it's really what's attractive to that moth. And believe it or not, they can figure some of this stuff out. I wish I knew how, but they do. But that don't mean that you're immune to them if, if you got a yard like mine. Uh, it don't mean that at all. But they do like the, the well-fertilized, well-kept stuff. and Golf horses. courses. Golf courses mm -hmm. and yeah, all that, absolutely. Yeah. So, Dudley, what about you? Have you got a question? Well, I was thinking, you know, I, I keep hearing you know, spray this, spray that. Are there any... Uh, ways you can get around that you know uh not everybody is into spraying uh sure uh, you know we've discussed planting times uh or maybe other species you can plant that they don't bother you know uh i know we've been we talked about it earlier but uh I've, i know we've had some luck planting as late as september 1st when we're discussing millet yeah. and have that's we kind ever, of my yeah that's kind of been and I can speak to experience of 20 years of that probably now. Here, you, I've just kind of used Labor Day. And we've planted after Labor Day and gotten lucky and got pretty good seed production. But that's pretty much a cutoff point. But you're, you know. You, you and just, then, and then another thing I think about is uh, like ducks, for example, they eat a lot of insects and invertebrates. So um, are there any uh, chemicals that, do not affect the insects later on or, you know, that kind of thing. I always think about that. I mean, ducks love eating invertebrates. Are you, are you talking about from the standpoint of, of uh, insects that might help you control, beneficials help control the army? No, I'm saying like you, you know, you Is spray Is it a problem your, for the ducks if they eat an insect that's been, no. No, I'm saying like you spray your duck hole in June. Are you still going to have insects in later stages dying uh, that a duck could have eaten. So are there any products that oh, don't see. have as long of a residual that you can use in your duck impoundments that aren't gonna infect those invertebrates later on, like in February when the you know ducks yeah. eat heavily on invertebrates? Okay, so the products that we're talking about, we're talking about that we have talked about that have that residual activity. We're talking about two to three weeks tops. We're not okay. talking about anything that's going to affect the duck time you flood okay. those okay. those things up. That would be that wouldn't be a, an issue at all. Okay, that's, that's good to hear. And also, the ones we're talking about with those long residuals tend to be the absolute safest anyway. Even if a duck or whatever ate it right behind it, right? I would think there would be no no real issue. I know that in, that Intrepid product is just an IGR, which it's is an, an insect growth regulator. Right. right. So it it typically doesn't allow that insect to go to the next stage of life development. I'm impressed. Is that right? That's exactly right. Okay. Yeah. So smart. that's why it's actually going to be a little slower too, because if you're three to four days between a molt, it's going to be, the insect's not going to die until it molts. Right. It's a molting accelerator on that one. Okay. But yeah. So they're a little slower, but they work. Which is also why that net's so important, because you can catch them when they're little bitty. And when you catch them when they're largely little bitty ones, then what he's talking about is the way to go. Yeah. And I, I have another observation. We were talking about this earlier, too. Um, you know, we had such a crazy cold front back in February across the southeast, and uh, there were dead birds everywhere. And I, I wonder if that has anything to do, you know, because birds eat moths. Yeah. Um, you were saying... My 
My guess is that, that that's not a, probably don't have a, a lot to do with it. Um, you know, in the in the insect that we're particularly talking about, don't overwinter here anyway, so they wouldn't have been here. And where they do pupate is under the soil surface, wherever they happen to be able to survive the winter. So it probably wouldn't have an effect. I don't see birds having a – of course, anything helps, you know. Yeah. The numbers that we're talking about, no. They're, okay. I don't think – even the ones you see in your field, they're, it's not enough to make that big of a difference, but happy to see it. So Interesting. The question – also is like, so I, I told the, the example of, you know, and for me, it's a giant place, a hundred acres of millet wiped yeah. out. How do they find it and multiply that fast? That's the one thing about it. I know that's why they're called army worms and how they do it. Is that, do they, moss find it, replicate that fast because they can single that out? I mean, they just exploded when they hit something they liked. Well, and I think we may have talked about this right before you okay. stepped in okay, I missed a, a that little part. bit, not not in, in in depth at all. But so they lay their eggs in masses. So they lay a clutch of you know it could be fifty, hundred, two, three hundred eggs. So every single moth is laying that. So you think if they hatch, even with fifty percent natural, you know mortality of that, you're still talking about every single egg mass, multiple, multiple you know, uh, larvae that's going to come out of that. So it don't take long if the numbers are extremely high to have just overwhelming numbers that are hatching out. All at the same time, evidently. It's just, just yeah, so pretty it, much. So you would say it has more to do with the moth is actually recognizing the kind of food yes. source for its young more than the worms sense it in March or whatever. Yeah, you know? and, and before you came in, he was telling us that these moths are migrating. Yeah. They're coming yeah, from yeah. south Mississippi, south Louisiana. Yeah. And they work their way north. Yeah, Chris Hawley's always, he's got a, um, he's got a, I think a blue light that he can shine like a kind of a spotlight blue light in the, like a uh, tomato worms will show up in your garden or the army worms in their pasture will show up and kind of glow at night. I've never heard of that before. Man, I, I, told I, have one of those. I haven't heard of that either. <laughs> he said it's like a, a, a ultraviolet, bright ultraviolet thing that you can see some, but he used to always go and check because they got so much pasture land where they live. And he would ride. He said, if you go at night with your headlights kind of on dim and ride through, you'll see swarms of uh, army worm moths oh, yeah. in your Bermuda grass. He said, you'll know it's fixing to happen yeah. by watching for those moths. But he said, you really got to go at night to see a lot of them because, like you said, heat of the day, they kind of go hide in the shade for Lanny, you've got a question? Well, I think everybody's kind of skipped around, so I was wanting to kind of really nail down some stuff. Oh, come you know? on. <laughs> I mean, I, hey. But, uh, that's, how we, that's how we roll. We that's right. Yeah. yeah. You know, so understand identifying if you have a problem. That's going to, you need to check your crops on a very regular interval. Look on the ground, take a net, see if you've got them. Uh, there's these, obviously, a lot of different treatment options that you need to read the label on and, and take precaution on. But, like we've all skipped around, like safe times to plant. Is there a nighttime temperature? You know, if temperatures get below a certain area, is it safe to plant after that? Just trying, you know, because I know we talk about planting after, you know, Labor Day here. Um, but, you know, we base a lot of things on soil temperature and nighttime temperatures. Is there a specific safe zone from a temperature range? You're talking fall food plots too, obviously. Yeah, yeah. Not, 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 I mean, two plants. Like, we know we all got them now, and everybody needs to wait 
to when do we need to plant? Yeah, because we don't get a frost until November. Yeah, we got to plant before November. The, you know, well, and our average frost date is what, November 6th, mm -hmm. November 4th? For, I mean, the, the long-term average, of course, it can vary yes. you know, within a few weeks of that. But frost, are, I mean, that's what's going to stop armyworms because, again, they can't handle and so, cold. So it. if you could predict when it was going to be, but that you have an average there. But we're going to be planted before that, regardless. You know, mm -hmm. so I, so there's not a safe watch zone. It. You just got to watch it. The, but now, of course, the further you you get toward that, mm -hmm. the better the better you're going to be. But you there's know, always we, that chance. Just like all these uh, hunters and fishers around Mississippi, when we get time to go, we got to go after Labor Day. That's, That's right. what we do. Right. And we try to hold back. We actually think about army worms every year because we work with this stuff, and we try to push it as far as we can. But trying to get all these members of a hunting club together when you have a work day, it might be on September 10th, and that's when we're gonna plant. Mm -hmm. So you got to kind of but getting out there and watching it, and, and you can take care of this problem. But you know, you just got to be ready to deal with it if you got the problem. Yeah, I know he's always sitting on go this time of year, ready to deal with it. Yeah, but he's got his can, rig. I mean, you you know, uh, the waterfowl thing is such a different management process yeah. because if we don't have food, we've missed a whole year. They're going to move on. Yeah. I mean, if you have deer or turkeys on your place, they'll still be around if you lose a food plot or two. So it's not as life and death. And if you want to protect them, you should study, you should listen, you should, you know, especially people that really know what they're doing. But for ducks, it's all or nothing. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, that's why, uh, you know, a, a crop like corn planted earlier, established and big before they, mm -hmm. and, but they'll even, you know, they'll destroy that if you're not careful. Or maybe grain sorghum, something that you plant before the invasion hits in, like he said, maybe June now mm. would probably be preferential. But if you're planting so many, we have a run every year this time of year. And nobody can get guys choice. Nobody can buy any of these millets. And everybody's learning that they can get really, really good, which I love because we're feeding more waterfowl. But Anywhere. if it's millets, which are so easy to grow and so quick turnaround and so good in late summer, you better be prepared over any crop you grow to deal with your worms or you will have nothing left. Yeah. Well, well, here's something else you could do. You know, I'm just sitting here thinking about it because one of the problems is like, I got one hunting club, it's two hour drive or whatever. You go check your, your club, you didn't bring your sprayer with you. Right. So you get there, you see you got a problem, what are you gonna do? You're gonna drive two hours home and you're probably gonna try you better. it. better. <laughs> but these products that we're talking about, like methoxyphenicide and trepid or prevathon that have these long residuals, you can preemptively put those out. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, if you go, if you got two or three, four inch, you know, weed or whatever coming up, I mean, you can make that application and buy yourself some time. Just, I mean, yeah. you wouldn't want to make a, 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 a application with something like a pyrethroid then, it only lasts a few days and the worms right. are not there. Right. But these things that have residual, you can put those out preemptively. And people do that a lot in duck holes. My colleagues that have duck holes that, I mean, they do it all the time and they never have problems, but they're not waiting on an infestation right. to come. They're, they're preemptively taking time. care right. of it. That's me. Right. He's yeah. talking about me if, if it gets, but I mean, I'm trying to get it tall enough where it actually is kind of like ha <clears throat> having the vaccine. Right. So if you spray a three inch plant preemptively, you probably hadn't, you know, by the time it grows a foot tall, that's four times or probably exponentially bigger and diluted more. So my only point in saying this is if you can watch it, watch it, watch it, and let it get maybe a foot tall before you spray it, like you said, then you probably are gonna be good. It'll be so big before, you know, it's probably making seed before they get on it. I've seen them just shredding grown full size, you know, 
three, four foot tall millet, and but it's already put on seed heads and it's too late. They can't stop it then. So it's it's basically you're paying the insurance when you yeah, when you yeah. I mean, down like that. I've had so many people ask me as they get more and more frustrated all over the place. It's like I just want to go ahead and spend the money and spray something when I plant my crop and be done with it. What do I use for that? I said there is nothing. Now I'll defer to him today as I know it. There's nothing you can do that. You have to wait at a minimum to uh, have a plant there. Yeah, yeah. You need to wait till you do. You have a plan. One yeah. of these products, and I don't want to get too much into it, but I'll, there is a little systemic activity with the Prevathon product that I mentioned. In other words, mm -hmm. it will move into the plant somewhat, and, and we played with some things on that. But it's a high dollar product, and I would, I think, at the end of the day, the best thing is just like what you said: get a little size on your plant, look at them, and then preemptively put some of these products out once you've got enough leaf coverage to take up, you know, to get some spray on it actually. And if you have this net, maybe, yeah. like you said, you know, we plant them, it couldn't be back to your food plot in the fall to two weeks from now. With the net, anybody can do it for you. Just tell them what to do and tell them what to look for. Once you've ever seen them one time, they'll, you'll see them in the net, you know, and if it's right. real small, like I said, drag it across the ground, drag it a longer area, go check different spots in the plot. And it could just be somebody still there locally. Anybody can check for them for sure. you. Sure. So let me just make sure I understand this right. So like Toxic's got this, we call it the sanctuary. And from time to time, it has had major army worm problems. Ooh. There's evidence by the storyteller. Every, so, every year if every we don't year. spray it. Right. So, every year. So those worms that are there eating, they're not going to survive the winter. There's no egg eggs that are laid, then they're coming back. Those are all migrating again back from somewhere deep in the south. south I mean, there'll be some some local dispersion, you know, if they happen to turn into a moth before we got a freeze or whatever. But they are kind of rolling. They kind of roll north, but they are dispersing out all at the same time. It's sort of a getting bigger where they at, but pushing north, pushing north. But every one of them, when we get to that last generation, that they're going to be able to make it and yeah. keep. They're going to keep going until they get to. The, a freeze or a frost or whatever, those are essentially suicidal generations. They're not going to reverse migrate back to where they started. We're going to deal with the local populations that start over the next year coming up. Yep. And you think I, all that's underwater? It killed. Well, it doesn't take many. And when do they start the process every year? Maybe May. Our first really calls that I got this year was about the first of June, but. It, which is a little early, but we did have some hay producers in South Mississippi that had them as early as, as mid to late May. But there, you know, if you just go hit the calculator, if one equals, what are you saying, maybe 300, cut it in half, say go with 150. One equals 150. They do 150 times 150. Yeah. And then whatever that is by 150. Exponential. And exponential. Yeah, so <laughs> that's right. It's like a crazy exponential number. So... I was, well, I was asking, when do they actually probably start the process each year? And I'm as soon as it's warm enough, I guess. May, maybe? As soon as it's warm enough, they come out of where they survived the winter. Right. And, you know, and they start moving. And sometimes fronts that move, southerly fronts that are moving north, yeah. sometimes it can pick up. I mean, they'll get in these wind currents and they can go way north yeah. at the time. Mm -hmm. So, there, you know, there's a lot that goes into it. So it wouldn't, like it wouldn't on the take coast a lot. Or like South America. Typically, we don't have much. There's probably in some years survival on like the Mississippi Gulf Coast, but we're really talking about places like the coastal bend of Texas right. and uh -huh. places like that that we don't really get freezes, you know, very often. Uh, and maybe yeah, in South America or Mexico as well. Yeah, yeah. gotcha.
Hmm. Okay, so look, Max got a question, and there's no telling where this question will go, but it'll probably <laughs> it'll be one. <laughs> I do. Uh, so we've talked about uh, migratory waterfowl, and one bird that's special to us is a migratory uh, the dove. So how do army worms affect you know a sunflower field, or can you can you treat a sunflower field the same way you would treat you know a stand of God's choice? So you know, again, I'm not. I don't commercially work sunflowers, but like any other, it is a commercial crop in places. We grow it for wildlife exclusively here, but uh, there are products, and I can't tell you off the top of my head what they are, that are legal to apply to sunflowers to control various pests. So if somebody had a question or they happen to have a problem with any insect, they don't necessarily have to be army worms. I wouldn't expect a lot of army worms in sunflowers, but you you may get them. I mean, you very well could get some if they moved off of grass or whatever else. But you could refer to the labels. Uh, there's It's pretty easy to do searches on Google. Hey, control whatever on sunflowers. It's going to start pulling products up and you can look at the labels. But there are products labeled in sunflowers just like tobacco or any other crop you right. can think of to control insect pests. You know, the only good thing I can think about that's coming out of these army worms is it might help some turkey poults. Yeah, mm-hmm. I've seen them. We had a big outbreak one year at the camp in Alabama because the yard's just like common Bermuda grass. And they just, it was just like, it, they smoked it. It was just dead brown. And But the poults that are raised around there were in the yard every day. Just wearing them out, which they, yep. you're right. It's not worth losing everything. Sure, yeah. I'd, I'd give up some Bermuda grass. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah I, I made the mistake of planting a brassica plot too early about ten years ago. I think I planted on August fifteenth, just experimenting a little bit, and uh, army worms got in it. It looked like the ground was moving, <laughs> and you would run the turkeys out, and then you'd come back ten minutes later, and they'd be back in the field. So. That's got to be a good high-protein food source. So what questions are we not asking that we should? Bronson, you're raising your hand over there. Is there something you've got? Yeah, so I've got one for Angus here, and and, um, I think this is good because you deer hunt, and you plant food plots, and you deal with this. So, And all we can deal with is history and the averages and so forth. So we have to go back and forth between traditionally October is the driest month, and so we have the kind of like Dudley was saying, you might want to plant early, but then you go three weeks, four weeks, sometimes with no rain. So people always ask me, do you roll the dice and plant early? And maybe you get caught with army worms, or maybe you get caught with a really, really dry October, or do you just avoid that and wait till the end of October and plant then? And possibly you diminish the opportunity of army worms and you're closer to when we usually are going to get reliable rainfall. Not a good answer for bow hunters because I know they want October 1st. You know, they want a standing crop or something. But if you're playing the averages and had to place a bet, do you bet on a crop in November or get it early but maybe attacked by army worms? Well, so... I think that's going to be just a, a preference for one because I am, I mean, I like bow hunting. That's what I want to do. The other thing is I deal with, this is what I do for a living. I kill bugs. I'm going to work. I know I can kill bugs. I'm going to plant when I think I can get a, a, you know, get a good pretty food plot and I'll deal with the bugs. Yeah. I mean, that's just my, my mm-hmm. thoughts. I'm not, 
Now, you know, I can understand if I got a, a lease in some other state and I can't get up there and I know it's going to be a problem or whatever, that's one thing. Then I might think a little more about, about army worms. But again, I mean, if, if you're a big bow hunter, you know, I don't want to wait to November to have a, a, a pretty food plot to hunt on. I want to so look army worms and, and go on. We're wired to the food plot world. I mean, our phone rings all day long. I don't really remember people... At, having much problem once September gets here playing Same, farm yeah. I mean, there I is some isolated, but not, for sure. not, not the and, majority. And I'm saying they better be prepared this year. Yeah. Yeah. Because I, I have seen it before. He yeah, knows I've more than it. me, but I've seen it even years ago. And I would also just, you know, evidentiary, you know, not research driven, but it just seems like so many years of dealing with this. The places I've had an outbreak before, become more likely targets in subsequent years for whatever reason. Maybe moths do that. But I've seen when we just go back to this uh, sanctuary we plant, it's like 20 years now or so. And we went for a long time and never had armor problems. It's surrounded by timber for miles. But once we ever started having armor problems, we've had it every single year there. So if you've ever had, I'm going to guess if you've had army worm problems with your bow hunting, especially planting bow Crops in, you got to get them in early. Yeah, you better be, you better be prepared. I mean, people really should be prepared, and maybe that's one thing we need to do, or put it on a website, or go down and have. Here's a list. Here's a here's a way to prepare in case, because from my experience as just the average Joe guy doing stuff, not you know a big big farmer. Good point. If you're not prepared, you're in trouble, and especially this year, as the products probably might not even be available. So mm-hmm. if you really have had problems before, you really ought to be prepared, sure. in my opinion. Sure. And you know what? Uh, that stuff will keep for years if you don't use it anyway. Just be safe with it if you don't. But there's more than just buying some chemical to being prepared, in my opinion. Yeah. Well, that makes great sense. Well, <clears throat> got to have the rig ready. Bronson, you're raising your hand again. You so, got- Angus, in that case, with Toxie, is that over time, through management, he's created a landscape that's just more conducive to colonization? Is he, that's why- is he imprinting army worms? Oh, oh man, yeah. It's it, it's hard to say, and I mean, it may be that in, in those food plots, you've been working on it for a few years, and you did get the fertility right, and all this kind of stuff. But we use history of fields all the time to make management decisions for them. And I mean, right. I use that line a lot. If you've had a history of this pest, now why do you have a history, and the guy across the turn road don't? That's questions that we can't answer. I got mm-hmm. people all the time that I got, you know, bowl worms in these beans, but across the road, I don't. What do you think it is? Is it, and, and we don't know the answer to that. But there's, I mean, these mobs are smart. They're going to try to find the best place that they think that they, that their offspring can make it and produce another generation. What they're looking for, we don't know. If we knew that, we could have pesticide-free everything because mm-hmm. we could break that cycle. But people work careers on that and, and, and never figure it out. But I do like what you said. If you have a history of a problem, you might have the problem. Just be ready. And we, yeah. we use that line a lot. Yeah. So, look, uh, Bronson, while you're here, I wanted to make sure we had, while we're talking about pests, what's the latest going on with uh, any any advances in wild pigs that might be on the horizon to help guys with? We hear there's something in Texas that might be interesting. I think they're genetically linked to armyworm. Yeah. <laughs> We're talking about plagues. Let's talk about hogs. They disperse and colonize like like. Yeah, exactly. I, feel like I feel like they're first cousins yeah. or something. Uh, probably 
in my opinion, I, I think the biggest advancement in the past five years is we have more people educated and doing something about it and more programs. Uh, for example, here in Mississippi, now we have the Mississippi Department of Ag and Commerce now has a program as well, coupled with wildlife services and some of the, the aerial gunning that they'll do in the Delta and places like that. Uh, that's probably the biggest advance right now that has resulted in more pigs dying. We do have, there's always toxicants in the mix. Um, I think that's gonna happen. It still hasn't happened yet. And people always ask why, and it's because it's a toxicant and we gotta be sure that it's safe for the non-target species. I don't wanna wipe out a sound or a pigs if it's gonna cost me deer, turkey, et cetera. Sure. And, and that can be a real big problem, especially sure. on the turkey. So we wanna be careful with that. I've heard a little bit, Bobby, about the, the deal out of, out of Texas. I have no experience with it yet. I don't know of any research confirming, confirming results yet. Let's keep our fingers crossed that, that it is a solution. Yeah. Well, I know you will know as soon as it does. I happened to be in an NRCS office this past week and saw this brochure on wild pigs. And, yeah. of course, it's by some other people that I recognize their names, but Bronson Strickland's down there at the mm -hmm. bottom. So hey. I, uh, I would encourage people to go by their NRCS and pick up its wild pig management. It's yeah, pretty, pretty interesting. And you, you can go to our website if you just Google wild pig info. Uh, all that information is there free to download. You can print it, whatever. But there's plenty of information, trapping information, what to do, how to do it. Yeah, that sounds good. Well, look, guys, what, what have, we've learned a lot today. There's, there's oh, no yeah. doubt. I, I didn't know they migrated. Yeah, just know. understand their life cycle period helps you going to help us be a better gamekeeper. You know what I mean? I feel like the world's a better place for somebody like Angus out there that's yeah. studying oh, well, that bug. Yeah. <laughs> so, so let's, you know, we did jump around. That's an ADD session because we're so fascinated with it. I yeah. don't know that I've ever heard anybody cover it, and we had lots of questions. I've been, but, you know, what's a basic plan? Again, I believe that if you, uh, like I've said before, I, I learned for me personally with growing this duck food in millets, if I'm not prepared, it's too late. So the rig is set up on a small tractor we can spray with. It's sitting there ready to go. The chemicals on the shelf, the formula's ready for whoever, you know. And so in literally in an hour's time from an outbreak that you find, you can get right on it. I've literally sprayed really, really short millet, three, four, five inches. And you can see yellow spots that I walked out in it. This is say maybe 15 acres worth. And there's yellow spots when I walk out to the yellow spot. It's just, you can just see like maggots already. And as I'm spraying in the heat of the day, you can see the yellow spots getting bigger, literally wow. before I get through spraying like an hour's worth. They're destroying it that fast. It, it's, I'm not kidding. So for the average guy, I was just gonna say maybe, you know, I would recommend anybody who's really interested in this, uh, get one of these entomology nets somewhere, honestly. And you may learn a lot more than just about armyworms by, you know, it's, it's for bugs. It was not developed just for armyworms. Um, Access to a spray rig, a predetermined formula by somebody really knowledgeable, the label, an expert, your local, you know, uh, extension office or whatever. Uh, you know, pick your chemical ahead of time. Be sure it's something, you know, appropriate, you know, fits the bill. I would just go ahead and make that plan and have it prepared. And above all else, uh, consult whoever you need to for the safety. And because then... As he said, you don't need to just throw them in the back of a four-wheeler and haphazardly spray even what's deemed a safer chemical. 
you need to be very, very, very careful too. So I'm, I'm just giving people advice from, yeah, I would be prepared if you are going to address this this mm-hmm. year, because if you aren't prepared, it's going to be too late when you find them. I think. So one, and I completely agree hundred percent. That was a really good line item thing that you need to be thinking about. But I want to back up and say one more thing here that we, that we never talk about really, we just assume, but I've learned this year that you should never assume this. One, you mentioned a while ago, the extension service. We have agents in all 82 counties and they're there to help. If they don't know the answer, they know who, they know who to call, mm-hmm. us or whoever. And they know exactly who works in what area. But here's something we never think about is a lot of people, particularly I'm guessing, food plot people and a lot of pasture people too, believe it or not, don't know how to calibrate their sprayer. Yeah. Calibration is, yes. is huge. Yes. And I, and I think this what we we have a, a blog that all of our row crop people contribute to. It's called Mississippi spell out mississippi-crops.com. And there's a search bar you look for anything you want in there and it, it's a it's row crop related. But we have a tab on there called publications and under that publications we have a calibration made easy that my colleagues and myself put together several years ago where we really tried to get calibration into layman terms and make people understand it. But if you have a, even if you have that four wheeler sprayer or whatever, if you don't know your GPA, your volume that you're putting out, you're guessing at what you're doing. You might not even be putting out a rate that'll kill an army worm. Mm-hmm. Right? Because what this thing's going to say, if you're putting out Intrepid and it says put out four ounces per acre, you got to know your volume. I mean, you got to know your speed, your volume. I mean, it's not just throw something in the tank and go across the field. You might not be putting enough out to kill anything. Exactly. It's very I, I get important. that question a lot about, you know, what percent solution do I need to have in my tank? Yeah. And the, the answer is, is how many <laughs> acres or, you know, what's the square footage of your field and yeah. you know, mm-hmm. calibrate your spray. So you want to put out a per acre rate, not a two and a half percent solution. And I would tell you this, even if you look at that publication, as hard as we tried to make a complicated subject easy, Again, if you if you, if you got questions about it, your local county agent or whatever, call them. They'll come out and help you do this. If they Huge don't know how to do it, they'll call one of us. We'll show you how to calibrate that thing, whether it's a multi-boom nozzle, a single boom, whatever. We can show you how to do all of that. But that's like the most important thing out of everything we've talked about. You've got to be able to deliver the amount of product yes. that the label's calling for. Mm-hmm. And it's a lot easier to do nowadays. Most of the equipment has a speedometer on it, so you can yep. you know, dial in exactly how fast you're going. Right. That's right. Yeah, that's a good point. That, that, that calibration is... Look, look, Mac, you need to jump on the internet when you get a chance and download that for us, and maybe we yeah, can where put was a that link web, on it. What was that website? It's, it's just a, it's a, oh, it's, it's, it's a blog that, that all of our, our row crop specialists, whether you're an entomologist, weed mm-hmm. science, plant pathologist, whatever, it's dedicated to ag, and it links you back to the Mississippi State Extension website on most of it. It's just a concise place where we can find stuff, but it's Mississippi dash crops.com. That's where we put all of our, our information to our farmers out weekly. Cool. Save we that push our resource. Well, Mississippi. Yeah, we push our we push our podcast to it as well. So I mean, yeah. Yeah, we'll, great we'll make that link available, guys. We'll put that in our when, when we do this post. Angus, I, I think that's our second most common recommendation with extension. Number one, get a soil test. Number yeah. two, calibrate your sprayer. Calibrate your sprayer. Yep. There you go. Yeah. So what questions are we not asking? Toxie just brought up a, a good list there that a guy needs to have. Is there anything else y'all can think of that I just want to make sure we cover it all? I, I was literally, that was what I was going to add. But because of oh, what Bronson. we just said, I, I, <laughs> nobody does it. 
Yeah. You know, with my my no, clientele, right. so to speak, one percent of the people yeah. do it. Yeah. And it's usually we're not even talking about dealing with army worms. It's getting the appropriate herbicide, the concentration mm-hmm. of herbicide, and and I've been guilty of it way back when as well. Especially when you're dealing with something like glyphosate, doesn't matter as much. But with some of these other herbicides, you got to get the concentration right. Yeah. So. What better way to be prepared when you've got to act really quick is calibrate your sprayer. Yeah, so Toxie's point's well taken. I'd also like to add that you guys need to wear safety glasses and, and gloves. pull on some gloves. Yes. Just, just be careful. Make you know, little trouble, but gosh, we all want to. That goes with herbicides too. Any yeah, of these chemicals, anything. any of these things, yeah. Yeah. just act like they're deadly. It should always be that safe. Mm-hmm. That's a good point. Angus, you got you, you. look like you spend a lot of time outside looking at fields and and, and looking for bugs. I guess killing yeah. bugs, man. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, I got probably the best tan I've had in a long time this year. But yeah, so I got shorts on it here. I'm, but this time of year, I wore my. Uh, you know, this week it's been really hot. But I actually wore my swim trunks Monday uh, because we get so wet during the day. Yeah. I bet so. Wow. I change clothes before I get back in the vehicle because mm-hmm. it's just horrible. But, yeah, we're in the field every day uh, around the state. And what we're doing is we're putting out trials. Uh, we're answering farmer calls, consultant calls, industry calls. But at the same time, we're putting out insecticide trials so we can tell our growers what to kill harming worms with, what to kill whatever with. A lot of these pests are very you know, um, economically damaging to our crops. And that's what my job is, is to help them avoid catastrophic loss to their, their crops. So we're constantly out evaluating everything that we can to make them more profitable. Well, once again, Mississippi State just impresses you guys. Yeah. Of course, everything yeah. that we. Why are you actually you Auburn? Why would you actually surprised? <laughs> of course we do. So somebody needs to make sure that baseball field over there doesn't get any Auburn. No, right. trust me, I, I guarantee you that one's on the top. Somebody's of the on that, I bet you. Yeah, yeah, heads will roll if that one gets an army worm in it. That's exactly right. There we go, man. There it is, man. So, well, I got one one last question. So. Like a football field that's highly fertilized and watered in the fall, with the lights that would be on in practices during August, would that attract moths and create potential outbreaks? I think it, I mean, lights definitely bring moths in. Whether that means they'll come in and lay there or not, I don't know, but they're definitely hitting football fields. I give somebody some intrepid to spray a football field in South Mississippi the other day that they were ravaging uh, something safe. So, uh, yeah, whether or not that would actually, it brings them in, but whether it brings them in to the point that they're going to be worse because it brought those in. You know, I'm not real sure. Yeah, about that, just a, no. just a question I had. So yeah, I'm just amazed. I didn't. Know. It's, a, it's a good question. You would think it would, but I, I don't yeah. know. They disperse yeah. when the lights go out. So who knows? Well, I'm just amazed at that this whole migration and and learning about that and how these waves move north and it, and I'm maybe I'm not smart enough to understand what's left back down south. If they're all moving north and laying eggs, where, where's the base of this? The, these? Well, there's some, there's always going to be a portion of the populations that don't necessarily migrate or do different things. So there's always some residual left behind. If it wouldn't, I mean, you, the, the alternative would be a species would go extinct. Mm-hmm. I mean, right, right. so there's always, yeah. you know, going to be a remnant in different places that's going to remain behind. They call that the Delta variant. The South Delta. The South Delta variant. That's where we got a Delta variant of army worm this year, too. You're going to get us in trouble. And before you get scared off, you better, you know, when people hear this, it may be too late. There's been such a run on the chemicals and stuff. Yeah. 
it looks expensive, but at four ounces an acre, that's 30 acres plus in a jug. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, and it, it does. In my, in my learning, it's, it keeps, if you don't let it, you know, leave yeah. it in 100 right. degree heat, it keeps for it years. Keeps well. Yeah. And just really put it stored in a safe, locked up place. And, you know, you're prepared for years if you need to be. Yeah. We use some, some of your buddies and buy some. We That's used we some did. the other day. I just had in the chemical shed that was probably eight or 10 years old and it still worked. Mm. Shake it up real good. Yeah. I've seen herbicides actually lose their shelf life, but I hadn't, not yet on these. Hmm. Well, gosh, this has been fascinating, guys. Yeah. Uh, uh, do we have anything else to ask Dudley? I would like to let's hold your ask Dudley till next week. Yeah. Since we're going to share this podcast with some other folks. Sure. But um, is, is there any other questions? Lanny, you always have a question. My, My stomach's growling. I smell it. You just down. say whoa to me or I'd keep them here all <laughs> <Yeah>. day. So <laughs> camp my, right. My, my tapeworm's acting up again. Yeah, yeah it, it is. is. <laughs> it is. So, so look, this has been fascinating. Bronson, you're always a great guest. You've wormed Thanks your way in here, here once again. <laughs> what, what, what a great, what a great analogy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And Angus, it's been, it's been fascinating meeting you. I, I've heard nothing. People told me that you were just like the South leading entomologist oh i don't know about that look i got some great colleagues around not just in mississippi but in the whole southern region and they're every bit as good or better than me and we work as a team on everything we do so yeah well that's good you got sounds like you got a good t- sound like a lot of bugs are in trouble if you're on that's the right, that's <laughs> right. I better look out i ain't on the yeah. case <laughs> a lot of big farmers have a new very best friend I mean, they do. yeah yeah and like angus we, got plenty of places to hunt yeah, you yes. know he does. <laughs> so look we hope bronson we hope your listeners have enjoyed this at the deer university and the crop doctors uh, look we just look farmers we have so much respect for what they do absolutely back so of the country so. So, look, if we don't have any more questions, I guess we'll close this thing out. And, uh, look, we appreciate everybody listening. And if you're listening, if you enjoy this, we sure would appreciate it if you give us a review. It, it, it would really help our A good review. Yeah, yeah well, a good review. Well, there's an honest review so we can learn from it. So Yeah, or share it with someone else, too. Yeah, that's you right. Spread the word. Spread that's the right. Love. And watch our television show Tuesday nights, The Gamekeepers of Mossy Oak. It's very important. So, uh, I guess I guess that's it. So, why don't you say goodbye, Dudley? Goodbye, Dudley. Get us out of here, Matt. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of the Gamekeeper Podcast. And be sure to tune in again. Subscribe to Gamekeeper Farming for Wildlife magazine. And don't miss the Mossy Oak Properties Fistful of Dirt Podcast with my good buddy, Ronnie Cuz Strickland. The Mississippi Crop Situation Podcast is a production of Mississippi State University Extension.